It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Suh. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at The Stone. We're going to be continuing our study through the book of Exodus today. And so as you've heard, starting today and for the next 10 weeks, um, we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments. We're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments. Now, when we say the Ten Commandments, we all have some sense of what they are. We all have some way of relating with the Ten Commandments, right? Some of us think, yeah, the Ten Commandments. I think they're really important. After all, it's God's word. I try to keep the Ten Commandments, and I feel like I do a pretty good job keeping them, better than most people anyways. Still others of us think, yeah, the Ten Commandments, I try to keep those throughout various points in my life, but every time I fail and I end up feeling guilty, I just can't seem to keep His commandments. They just feel like, they feel like it's too demanding. I feel like God's asking too much of me. Others of us think the Ten Commandments, uh, I think it's old and archaic. I think, you know, isn't it just from the Old Testament and it doesn't really apply to us anymore? And um, all that really matters is that I love God and I'm a good person. And we could probably go on and on. But generally speaking, these are some of the common ways that Christians relate with the Ten Commandments. I'm not even talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about people who claim to be Christians. These are some of the common ways that we relate with the Ten Commandments. And our hope through this series is that all three of those views will be corrected. There's a problem with each of those views, and we want to be led by God's Word. We want to be led by the Holy Spirit so that we can properly see how we ought to relate with God's commands. And we want to do that basically in three ways each week. First, by asking, what is the command? What is the command? What is God really commanding? What's he really saying so that we can see whether we're really obeying or not? Second thing we want to do is ask, what does obedience look like? What does keeping this command actually look like so that we can realize that obedience is meant to free us, not move us into further bondage and slavery, but towards freedom and flourishing? And the third thing we want to do is ask, what happens if we don't obey? What happens if we find that we can't obey? Well, if the Ten Commandments are old and archaic, and if it doesn't apply to our lives anymore, what will happen if we don't keep them? Well, nothing, right? If it doesn't apply and we don't keep them, then nothing will happen. But if we see that God does do something about it, then we know that it applies and is relevant for our lives today. And so number one, what is the command? Number two, how do we obey it? And number three, what happens if we don't obey? Let's look at the first question. What is the command? Exodus chapter 20, verses one through three. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse three, here's the command. You shall have no other gods before me. So there it is, that's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The first thing I want us to notice is what the commandment doesn't say. What it doesn't say. It doesn't say you must have a God. It assumes you already have a God. The first commandment doesn't say it's important that you worship some God and I want it to be me. The first commandment when it says you shall have no other gods before me is assuming that you're worshiping already, okay? And it's a call to only worship the true God. Now this word worship, we're going to be using it a lot. What does it mean? 
You're worshiping something when it's the object of all your hopes and dreams. That's when you're worshiping. When you place all your trust in something, when you hang all your security in something, that's when you're worshiping. When you lean into something and place the whole weight of your life on something, you're worshiping that something. The Hebrew word worship meant to fall down prostrate. And so if you fall down prostrate, the whole of your life on something or someone, you're worshiping that something or someone. When you point to something and you say, unless I have that, I won't be happy. Unless I have that, I can't be happy. That's when you're worshiping. That's what it means to worship. And what the first commandment is telling us is that God, first and foremost, created us, designed us to be worshipers that worship. That's why it's the first commandment, because it's addressing what is first and foremost about us. He first and foremost created us and designed us to be worshipers, and so he addresses worship. G. Campbell Morgan, a leading British, British scholar back in the early 1900s wrote, every man needs a God. There is no man who has not somewhere in his heart, in his life, in the essentials of his being, a shrine in which is a deity whom he worships. It is as impossible for a man to live without having an object of worship as it is for a bird to fly if it is taken out of the air. The very composition of human life, the mystery of man's being, demands a center of worship as a necessity of existence. All life is worship. There may be a false God at the center of the life, but every activity of being, all the energy of life, the devotion of powers, these things are all worship. The question is whether the life and powers of man are devoted to the worship of the true God or to that of a false one. So what Reverend Morgan is saying is that it's a given that we worship. We were created and designed to be worshipers. There is no escaping it. And the only question is, what are you worshiping? The only question is, who are you worshiping? We might very easily answer, oh, I'm a Christian. I worship God. I'm here on I. I worship God. But here's the other critical thing we need to see in the first commandment. It says, you shall have no other gods before me, before me. Now, some of us have learned that what this means is that, sure, you're going to have lots of things in this world that you love, lots of things in this world that you trust and put your hopes in. Just make sure God is number one in your life, right? How many of you learned this commandment taught in that way? You're going to have lots of important things in this life. Just make sure God is number one. Just make sure you love him most. Just make sure you trust him most. While that may be a true principle, that's not what this commandment is teaching. When it says, you shall have no other gods before me, the before me there is not talking about order or ranking. It's not talking about make sure you worship God, love God before all these other things. It literally means before my face or in my presence. Have no other gods before my face, in my presence. And, and so the warning isn't that you're not worshiping God as the number one God in your life. That's not the warning. The warning is you're trying to worship God and other gods, which is exactly what the Israelites were doing. They were trying to worship God and all these other gods that they had learned to worship in Egypt. When it says the problem with you and I today, the problem with our church today isn't necessarily that we're not worshiping God at all, but the problem is we're trying to worship God 
and other gods. That's our problem. We're trying to have the best of both worlds. We're trying to go after all the things that the world goes after, but then come over here and go after God because we want to go to heaven. We want to have it really good here, but we also want to have it really good there in heaven. We want to have the best of both worlds, but, but Jesus said, if you want to follow after me, you need to take up your cross and follow me. Following Jesus, worshiping God alone, means that you're taking up your cross and following him. He's saying in this world it's going to cost you, right? Health and wealth is not promised. Only the cross is promised. He said if you try to keep your life in this world, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life in this world, you'll find it. What the first commandment is showing us is the absolute impossibility of trying to go after God and other things, trying to worship God and other idols. But what's the big deal, you might ask? Yes, there's some things in my life that you could point to and say, perhaps they're my idols, maybe my actions towards these things, perhaps you can say I worship them, but at least I also worship God, right? Isn't it better that I also worship God? Wouldn't it be worse if I didn't worship God at all and worshiped other things? Oftentimes, the Bible describes our unfaithfulness to worship God and God alone as adultery. It describes it as adultery when we try to worship God and other things. And as you can imagine, being unfaithful towards your spouse and committing adultery, that would be a bad thing, right? Committing adultery against your spouse, that would be a bad thing. But what if you were to commit the adultery in the presence of your spouse? What if you were to commit the adultery with your husband or your wife in the room, in their presence, before their face? That's what this commandment is talking about. Would you ever argue then, what's the big deal? At least my husband was in the room. Would you ever argue, isn't it better that my wife was there? Wouldn't it be worse if she wasn't there? Would that ever be our argument? What God is saying is don't commit adultery against me in my presence, before my face. And since he's God, is there anywhere we can go to escape his presence? Is there anywhere, some, some hiding place we can go where we can go away from God to worship some secret idol? Is there anywhere we can go? No. It's a call to worship him and him alone. The heinousness of breaking this first commandment is likened to someone committing adultery in the very presence of their spouse. All right, so what other gods do we worship? Certainly we're not out in the woods bowing down to sticks and stones. That's not what idolatry looks like for us, but make no mistake, we all have these little lords in our lives. We all have these little gods, these idols that we worship and we bow down to. How do we find what these things are? How do, we, how do we bring it into the light? How do we reveal it? Here's how you find them. You can find them in your fears. You can find the idols in your fears. What are you most afraid of happening? Ask yourself that. What are you most afraid of happening? Are you afraid that you'll never be married and be single for the rest of your life? And I'm not just talking about feeling lonely because you're single. That's not what makes an idol. I'm talking about feeling, feeling lonely, and it's a despairing loneliness. I'm talking about a loneliness that has sunk down deep and is producing bitterness towards God for not giving you what you want. It's producing jealousy towards your friends for having what you so desperately want. When you look at your deepest fears, you can find your idols hiding. And so it may not be singleness but what are your deepest fears? 
for you can find them in your happiness. What makes you the most happy? What brings you the greatest delight? What do you find yourself daydreaming about? When you're not thinking about anything and then you find yourself all of a sudden thinking about something, what is that something? What, do you, what does your mind have a proneness to wonder to without any effort at all? For me, it's food. It's food. I love food. If you see me staring at my phone at 10 a.m. intently, it's because I'm looking at Yelp. I'm looking at all the restaurants I've bookmarked. I'm going, okay, what's it going to be today? Is it going to be Korean or Chinese or Japanese? Because Asian foods are the best. And, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'm wondering, what am I going to eat today, you know? Only if I treated my time with God like that. God, God, where are we going to meet today, God? Can we meet in the book of Genesis today? God, can we meet in the book of Hebrews today? God, I know, will you meet me in the book of the Psalms today? What if I treated my time with God like that? Now, I'm not saying whatever makes you happy is your idol. I'm saying whatever you can't be happy without is your idol. Not whatever makes you happy is your idol. Whatever you can't be happy without is your idol. It's not just that eating good food makes me happy. That's normal. That's natural, right? But it's when I have a lunch meeting and the person that I scheduled the lunch meeting with says, let's meet at Salada or Nuke, somewhere only I could get rabbit food. And I'm like, I don't want lettuce, I want meat, you know? And it, and it makes me angry. And when I get angry, that's when I know it's an idol in my life. That's when I know it's a problem. Not when something makes you happy, but when happiness depends on it. What are the things in your life that affect your joy? The things that you can't be happy without. Is it food? Is it sex? Is it clothes? Is it a fit body? What are the things that you're looking to and you're saying, unless I have that, unless I have it my way, then I can't be happy. I refuse to be happy. What are those things? Those are the real gods that we worship. Now here's an unsuspected place that you can find your idols. You can find them in your prayers. You can find them in your prayers. What are the things that you find in yourself asking God over and over and over again? What are the things that you find yourself even negotiating with God after? God, I promise to do this if you dot, dot, dot. God, I promise to give this up if you. God, I promise to obey if. Whatever is on the other side of that if, that's your God. When God becomes the means by which you're trying to get something else, that something else is your true God. That something else is what you're really worshiping. What is that something else for you? Is it a, is it a person? God, I promise to do this if so-and-so will start liking me. God, I promise to obey you. I promise to give this up if you would give me this car or this house or this toy. Is it some possession? Or is it a goal? God, I promise to obey if you give me a promotion. Is it some goal? Is it some accomplishment? Now, none of these things may be in and of themselves bad. Idols oftentimes are in and of themselves good, but good things, when they become our ultimate things, become our idols. So when we really look at the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, when we really look at it, we find ourselves all guilty. There's not a single person in this room that should be able to say, oh, I keep that commandment pretty well. I feel pretty good about myself. We all find ourselves guilty because none of us are keeping the command, commandment to the fullest extent that it's demanding. When we really look at what God is commanding here, the point is this, that when it comes to worshiping God, it's all or nothing. 
When it comes to worshiping God, it's all or nothing. This is the way it's always been. When Joshua told God's people, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what it was about. It was this way at Mount Carmel when Elijah said to God's people, if the Lord is God, serve him. But if Baal is God, serve him. And it was this way for Jesus when he said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And so the next question is, okay, so then how do we obey? What does obeying this commandment look like? Well, if we find ourselves all guilty of not keeping God's command, first we need to obey through repentance, right? If we see that we have all these idols in our lives, first step towards obedience is by getting rid of the idols in our lives, right? Well, sounds simple enough, but what does it look like when we, as, when we talked about before that much of the idols in our lives are good things? What does it look like getting rid of idols that are good things? If you find that wanting to be married is an idol and somebody asks you out, what do you do? You say, get thee behind me, Satan. What do you do? <laughs> if you find that your career is an idol and your boss calls you and says, hey, we want to give you a promotion, what do you do? Say, um, no, thank you. Actually, can I have a demotion instead? What, what do you do? What do you do? We have a really good picture of what we should do when we look at Abraham and Isaac. Pastor Tim Keller points this out in his sermon on this text. If you remember, God came to Abraham and promised him that he would be the father of a great nation. But after many, many years, Abraham and Sarah still found themselves childless. It's pretty difficult to become a father of a great nation when you don't even have a single child. But God was faithful. And Abraham, at the age of 100, God gave Sarah and Abraham a son, Isaac. Isaac was the son that he had been waiting for all his life, right? And so Abraham loved his son. He placed all of his hopes and dreams in his son. Isaac had become an idol in Abraham's life. But Isaac, like most of our idols, wasn't a bad thing. He was a very good thing. In fact, the fulfillment of God's promise. But that good thing had become an ultimate thing in Abraham's life. And so this is what God said to Abraham. He said, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love. I want you to take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him to me. And so as you can imagine, Abraham wrestled and wrestled with this. He couldn't imagine how in the world a good God could ask him to do such a thing. Right? Why would God ask him to do this when it was God himself who gave him Isaac? He wrestled and wrestled. He didn't understand, but when he woke up in the morning, he said, son, let's go. Let's go. We're going to go make a sacrifice. What was he doing? He was saying, I, I don't know. I don't understand. But if God has shown me anything, he's shown me that he's trustworthy. I trust him. And so he placed Isaac up on the altar. And he raised the blade over his chest, and as he was about to bring it down, God said, stop, stop, don't do it, Abraham. Now I know, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. And God gave Isaac back to Abraham. And as he told Abraham, he's telling us today, as he told Abraham, he's telling us today, he's telling us to walk up the mountain with the Isaacs in our lives. The good things that even God's given us that have become the ultimate things. He's calling us to go up the mountain, take the Isaacs and place it on the altar, right? And offer it to God. What, he, what will he do with it, we ask? 
right? Will he take it from our lives or will he give it back? The point is it's not up to us. The point is it's not up to us without anticipating what he's going to do, right? Offer it to him freely and trust him to do what is best for you, right? And the offering, if it's a truly an offering, not an anticipating, oh, if I just do this, then he'll give it back. If it's truly an offering, then the offering itself will liberate you from that idolatry. How do you make sure that good things don't turn into ultimate things in your life? How do you make sure that good things don't turn into idols that you worship in your life? Well, you hold them in your open hand. You hold them loosely in your open hand. You say, God, these are good things that you placed in my life. But at any time, you can take it from me. These things belong to you, and I belong to you, and I trust you. But the very moment you close your hands and you say, uh, these things are mine, God. The very moment you close your hands and say, God, I'm going to take this for myself, God. That's when it becomes an idol in your life. Now, you might say, well, that sounds all well and good in theory, but it sounds too difficult. Doesn't the Bible say something about God's commandments not being burdensome? How do you take these things that are so good, and how do you just give them up as an offering? It sounds too difficult. What you're talking about sounds incredibly difficult. Well, you're right. The Bible does say that. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. On the surface, the command, you shall have no other gods before me. It sounds very burdensome. It sounds very demanding. It looks like a very heavy yoke for God to say, you can only worship me. So how in the world could this command not be burdensome? The only possible way a demand like this, a commandment like this, can not be burdensome is if it's given within the context of a love relationship. If it's given within the context of a love relationship, let me explain. Think about this with me. If after church today, you decide, hey, no more rain, sunny outside, let's go hang out downtown Austin, and then some random dude comes up to one of you ladies and he says, hey, I only want to be with you. I want you to be the love of my life. I don't want anyone else in your life competing for your love, and nothing will make me happier than if you and I would be together all the days of our life. What would you say? What would you do? Hopefully yell creeper and run, right? <laughs> Ladies, don't fall for that trick, okay? Don't do it. Run, r- yell creeper and run. But <laughs> what if one afternoon you heard the doorbell ring, and you open the door, and it's your husband, and he's standing at the door with flowers in his hands. And you say, why did you ring the doorbell, babe? And he says, I just wanted to surprise you. I wanted to let you know that I only want to be with you. I wanted to let you know that you're the love of my life. And that I don't want anything to be in your life that competes with your love. And I want you to know that nothing will make me happier than to be with you for the rest of our lives. In fact, I got a babysitter. We're going to go out for the rest of our evening. What would you say? What would you say? I tell you what you wouldn't say. You wouldn't say, 
you only want to be with me? You only want to be with me? How demanding, how demanding is that, okay? That's, that's putting a lot of pressure on me. You, you wouldn't say nothing will make you happier, nothing will make you happier. How selfish, it's all about you, 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 okay? You wouldn't say that, why? Why? Do you see how the context of the love relationship changes everything? God is saying, I set my love upon you. He's saying, I'm crazy about you. I've moved heaven and earth to save you, to be with you forever. Let's look at the text again. Let's look at the context. Exodus 20, 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words saying, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Before verse 3, he tells them verse 2. Before he tells them what they need to do, he tells them what he's already done. He tells them that he's done all that's required to save them out of Egypt, out of slavery, right? And so if you look at what he's already done for you, you'll see that there's no one like him. What idol has done for you what your God has done for you? All the things that you're hoping in, all the things that you're putting your energy into, all the things that you're bowing down to, what idol has done for you what your God has done for you? He's holding nothing back. He's already given you everything. He didn't even withhold his son from you. You see, if you see what he's done, you'll see that he's not being demanding. He's just telling you that he doesn't want anything to come between you and him. He's committing that nothing is going to separate you from his love. The first commandment is just another way of saying Romans 8.38. It's just another way of saying Romans 8.38, which says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What are all those things? Those are all the good things, all the bad things, anything that has the possibility to be an idol in your life that could separate you. And God's promise is, no, none of those things will separate you from my love. It's just another way of saying Romans 8.38. The only way we can have a God that guarantees that nothing will separate you from his love is if you also have a God who says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the same coin, just on two different sides. You can't have one without the other. Now you might say, okay, I see that, I agree. It sounds wonderful. But as wonderful as it sounds, I know myself, I know my heart, I know my sin patterns, and I know that as much as I will try to worship God and God alone, I know I'm going to fail. I know I'm going to disobey. And so what's going to happen if I don't obey? What does God do when we can't, when we don't, when we won't obey his commands? Let me tell you what God did when his people didn't obey his command. Hundreds of years later, after Exodus 20, when God gave them his Ten Commandments. After hundreds of years of God's people not obeying his command, right? This is what he did. God's, God would speak once again from the top of another mountain. He would speak once again from on top of another mountain in Matthew 17. Jesus was there along with Peter, James, and John. And just like it was at Mount Sinai, there was a terrible, glorious, frighteningly bright cloud which overshadowed them. And from this mountain, God would speak. But what would he say? What would he say? 
He spoke from the mountain and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's what he said. What's happening here? Instead of giving them the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone and shattered as soon as they were given because of the people's disobedience, God uttered only one commandment. Not ten, only one. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What's he saying? He's saying it all hangs on Jesus now. It all hangs, it all depends on Jesus now. Right? Instead of presenting before them all of his commands, all of his demands, what he's presenting before them is the only person who could possibly keep all of his commandments perfectly. And he's saying, it all depends on him now. Listen to him now. All your faith, place in him now. All your trust, place in his ability to obey and not your own. And so Jesus did perfectly obey every single one of God's commandments. And at the cross, he, play, he traded places with us, don't you see? He traded places with us. That's what happened at the cross. At the cross, as he was being forsaken by God, he was being treated as if he worshipped idols. Why would God choose to forsake, pour his wrath out upon his son who kept all of his commandments perfectly? Why? How? Because he was trading places with us. At the cross, he treated Jesus as if he worshipped all the idols that you and I worship. Though he was absolutely faithful, though, he, though his heart never wavered once in worshipping God and God alone, he was treated as if he worshipped idols so that you and I in this life right now can be treated as if we worship God perfectly and faithfully. And that would be enough, right? That would be enough. But because he loves us so much, he's not satisfied with just treating us as if we obeyed, even if we don't. He's not satisfied with treating us as if we're worshiping God and God alone, even if we worship other things. He's going to keep coming after us and pursuing us until he truly is, until he alone is the object of our love and worship. In his love, he keeps coming after us until our hearts are wholly won by him. He keeps coming after us until our hearts truly only belong to him and we trash all of our idols. When will this happen? When will that happen? The book of Revelation gives us a glimpse into what our worship is going to look like one day in glory. Revelation chapter 5 describes the day when we'll be in heaven. Okay? When we'll be in heaven and we finally see King Jesus and all that he's done for us and saving us, and there's going to be a little worship service that breaks out there. And this is what it's going to look like. Revelation 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and, and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. So these are thousands and thousands, myriads of myriads of angels singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, that's us. What are we going to say? We're going to yell back to the angels, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures, I don't know who they are, but the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. 
when we're all there, when we're all there on that day, imagine it. When we're seeing Jesus and all that he's done for us, when we're singing and worshiping like that, do you think we're going to be thinking, man, this is great, but I sure wish I wouldn't have been single for so long on earth. As we're singing, and to the lamb and and the one who was slain, be glory and honor. As we're singing and worshiping like that, do you think we're going to think, man, this is great, but but I sure wish I would have gotten that promotion and become CEO of that company. As we're singing and praising like that, do you think we're going to think, man, this is great, but I wish my life was a little bit easier on earth and and I would have gone on more vacations and had that better house. No. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? There's coming a day when everything that we valued and treasured and pursued and worshipped that was not God in this world will seem like utter foolishness. There's coming a day when we will refuse to give our hearts to another because we will finally see Jesus. We will finally realize all that he's done for us in never letting us go, in refusing to let us go, even when we were turning to other gods and other idols, keep pursuing us, keep coming after us. When we see finally all that he's done for us so that we could finally be standing there and worshiping him, he will have wholly won our hearts. We will refuse to give our hearts to another. There will be no more worship left over for anything else but our King Jesus. There's coming a day when we see Jesus face to face and all of our hopes and dreams found in anything else in this world will fade away. We'll find that. We'll realize that he had greater hopes for us than we had ever hoped. We'll see that he had dreamed greater dreams for us than we ever dared to dream for ourselves. There's coming a day when we will completely and utterly be satisfied. Our hearts right now, it's just, it's just trying to go this way, trying to go this way. Is it here? Happiness found here? Will I be happy here? Right? There's coming a day when it will all be calm. When we'll finally see. When it will no longer be shaken we will completely and absolutely and utterly be satisfied and content and happy and joyful. Why? Because you and I will finally be doing what we were created and designed to do, and that is to worship God and God alone. That day is coming. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your laws. Father, will you bring us to the point where when we encounter your laws, we will not see it as burdensome. We will not see it as just some things that we can't keep and so there's no use trying. But Father, will you use them as what you designed them in our lives to be, as tutors, as tutors that say, don't you see, this is good for you. As tutors that say, don't you see, this is the only way you're going to ever flourish in this world. As tutors that say, don't you see, this is the only way you can be happy and truly be free. All these other things in your life that buy for your worship, that buy for your energy and time and effort, they're all false gods. There are no gods at all. In them, There is no happiness. There is no satisfaction. Father, will you use these laws to act as a tutor to point us to the grace of Jesus, that he kept all the commandments perfectly for us, 
and that we are now credited with his righteousness. But not only that, but not only that, he's continuing to come after us. He's continuing to pursue us now until our hearts are wholly won by him. So Father, we know that one day, there's coming a day when we will worship you and you alone with our whole hearts. But our prayer is that in this life, let it be as close to that as possible. In this life, let our worship be as close to as what it will be one day as possible. We ask you in the powerful name of Jesus, amen.